Hey everyone, you're listening to an Acts Church sermon. If you have not heard of us before, you can check us out at www.axcamus.org or come check us out on a Sunday. All right, here is the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. So this weekend, I uh, performed a, a wedding for, yeah, for my daughter, uh, Corey. And Jonathan Cook, I am now officially related to Glenn Cook. So, so pray for me. <clears throat> He's my daughter's father-in-law, and I'm sure he'll do a good job. The dowry was sufficient. <laughs> 17 camels, so it was, it was good. <clears throat> it, is, it is a special thing to see your daughter, who you've raised, get married and joined to another man, both of them made in the image and the likeness of God coming together in a union. And in another way, while it's a very special thing, it's the most normal thing in the world, right? This was set aside at the beginning. In Genesis uh, 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the beginning, God has set a plan for our lives. From the very beginning, he always knew it. We're his creation, made in his image and likeness, and we were set to live in and through him in a very particular way that was all about full life. Full life. God has set the standard for what life looks like, right? What it's supposed to look like. From the beginning, he set that standard, and he's given us scripture, right? He's given us the Bible, and he's given us nature, all the things that he's made to help us to see what that life is supposed to look like. If you read Romans 1, it talks about those things, that we have nature and that we have scripture and all that we need to know about who he is, about the, his eternal Godhead, about all these things we can know through nature and he's given us scripture and then he came, just in case we didn't get it. He came to earth, the Father sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to earth to show us by living out that kingdom of heaven life in front of us and for us. And yet we constantly and continuously seem to want to reject the standard that God has set for us. Instead of choosing those things that lead to life, we tend to choose things that lead to death. From Adam and Eve in the garden, succumbing to temptation from the serpent, and eating that fruit, the one thing, he gave them one thing to do, right? They couldn't do that. To Cain and Abel, a brother murdering a brother. To the rebellion of the Israelites. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees who rejected and asked for the death of Jesus. To the many, many who claim to follow Christ now, but live like they've never even heard what his commands are. All of this, all of this is the world that we live, on and live in, and yet God still has, still has a plan for everyone in this room, for everyone who's listening to this sermon. He has a plan for all of us, a plan that he set in the beginning. My grandfather is here with us at Acts Church today. Yes, give him a hand. <clears throat> he loves attention, loves to be clapped for, so yeah, it's, it's good, no. 
When I was younger, we would visit my grandma and my grandpa uh, for vacations because my dad was too cheap to pay for real vacations. <laughs> Let's go to Disney World. Oh, we'll go to grandma and grandpa's house. Um, anyway, no, we loved it. We loved going there. Um, we'd go there. They had this playhouse in their backyard, like this wooden playhouse. Probably be, you know, a death trap now for kids, but for us, we loved it. And spiders all in there. And, you know, it was fun. It was fun. They, they also had one of those... Do you remember the foam toilet seats? Anybody have one of those? Very comfortable, very comfortable. Um, so they had one of those. I just, these are the things I remember, okay, from being young. <clears throat> but the event that I always liked when we would go to Grandma and Grandpa's house is when Grandpa would make his famous breakfast. He would make these pancakes and all the breakfast stuff and then this orange Julius. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of orange Julius that you could used to be able to go to the mall and get. That stuff is that's garbage in comparison to grandpa's orange juice. This was the real stuff, right? With like the raw egg in there. So you get that little tang of salmonella. It was, it's the good stuff, right? And I loved those breakfasts. I loved them. I would, I would always ask when we'd go visit what day grandpa was gonna make his breakfast. And then on that morning, I'd go down all fired up, ready for my pancakes, my orange Julius. It was wonderful. Because my grandpa loved us. My grandpa loved us and for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason he loved us and wanted to, us to enjoy our time when we were there, he wanted us to experience life together as a family in joy. And so this is one of those moments, one of those things that to this day, and I'm old, I just got my daughter married, so I know I'm old. I still remember those times and those breakfasts, uh, and they were a special thing that Grandpa would do for us. But that was not all Grandpa did. He also had rules. Grandpa had rules. You may, your Grandpa may have had rules too, because he knew it was best for us grandkids and when we were with Grandpa, we needed to do what he said because he was keeping us safe. He was responsible for us. Um, and so we needed to do what he said. One time he came down. My dad was pastoring in California, Southern California, and that's where we were living. And, and Grandpa came down to visit us, and we went for a walk. My brother, I, I think it was just my brother and I and Grandpa. And we decided we'd walk to my elementary school, which back then we used to walk to school. It was like a mile away in a city. I did it when I was in kindergarten, like five years old. Nobody with me. That's what kind of parents I had. Um, but that... <laughs> I think they were hoping somebody would, you know, <clears throat> take me. Nobody wanted me, though. So um, we, would, we would go. So we went on this walk to the, to the elementary school. And I don't remember what Grandpa asked me to do. That part I don't remember. But I do remember that I didn't do what Grandpa asked me to do. And I remember that because when you didn't do what Grandpa asked you to do, there was a consequence, okay? Grandpa has these, these hands, these very large hands. <laughs> There are polar bears who are jealous of the size of the paws on my grandpa. They are just huge hands. And those hands, no doubt, were there for hugging. They always were. But they were also there for discipline. And when I disobeyed grandpa that day, those hands went to work. Okay? To make this story short and sweet, I listened to grandpa from then on. There was no more not listening to grandpa. And I wore a pillow my backside whenever he was around. You all thought I just had a large rear end. Why you were looking, I don't know. We'll get to that later in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, only the people who read the Bible a lot will get that joke, and I know if you laughed or not. So, um, it, was, it was a special time, but there was both the love and there was the discipline, right? The bottom line is that God is like that. He's like that. He knows what's best for us. And he loves it when we wake up in the morning overjoyed to just hang out with him 
and get some Orange Julius, so to speak. I'm sure that's not healthy now, carbs, whatever. It's delicious. Um, and have some pancakes and whatever with God, right? I know some of you are like, I'm gluten intolerant. Well, that's because you're a sinner, okay? Um, <laughs> it's okay. We all think it's great when you mention that. Um, no, God can make gluten-free pancakes. He can probably even make them taste good, which is more than most gluten-free stuff. But God, God wants us to be in this world in perfect relationship with him. That's what he wants. He wants it to be like that, like those mornings where I got up and I just couldn't wait to go hang out with grandpa and my family. God wants us to be in that kind of relationship with him where we just love to be with him. But part of that relationship is that sometimes when we go our own way and we get disorderly, God has to correct us. He has to correct us. I did not enjoy the experience of getting grandpa's spankings nearly as much as I enjoyed getting his orange Julius, right? But if my grandpa was not the kind of man, this is important, if my grandpa was not the kind of man who would correct me, who would discipline me when I was getting disorderly, when I was going off the, the way, when I was doing things that were gonna harm me, that were gonna harm others, if he was not the kind of man who would correct me and discipline me in those moments, then I wouldn't have enjoyed those breakfasts with him because the point of me enjoying those breakfasts was because of the kind of man he was. And without the discipline, the love wouldn't have been there in the same way. See, I had to know that grandma and grandpa loved me enough to discipline, that I had to know that they loved me enough to risk me not liking them or not wanting to be around them or whatever, because that's what you have to fear when you discipline somebody, that they're gonna reject you, that they had to risk that rejection in order to do what was best for me. That's the kind of person that made the breakfast such a great thing. And God's like that. God's like that. He will give us so much joy, but he will also correct us when we're harming ourselves, when we're harming others, when we're harming his children. Now, we've been in this series called Rooted for quite a while, um, going through some of the letters in the New Testament. The last one we were in was Second Thessalonians, and as that ended, we got into this, this section about sort of discipline, about shunning the disorderly brother and so on and so forth. Um, and, and it was interesting and kind of pushed up against us a little bit because the conception that we as Christians, as the church, have to discipline and use discernment and so on with our own brothers and sisters in Christ within the church is sort of uh, foreign to a lot of us in this culture. The idea that anybody can tell anybody else what to do and, and things like that. And so as we walked through that and went through that passage of scripture, the, the question arises, how, what else? What else about church? What else about being a Christ follower is foreign like that? What else it pushes against culture and the world's idea of what the church is or what it should be, or culture and the world's idea of how we should live? What's different about that? And so we're, we're looking at the differences now. And there are a lot of them, a lot of them. There's a lot of different things for a follower of Christ than there is for the person who's not following him. It's a completely different world. And I know that, that there's gonna be a lot of kind of accountability that comes up in this, and all of us need that. I know that I've needed it many times. I've needed the accountability that's been brought to me by brothers and sisters in Christ, the accountability that's been brought to me by God. And for those of you who have experienced it, you know it's transformational. And the idea is that what we're gonna go through is gonna bring some of that transformation to us. We're gonna walk through the teaching, the commandments of our king, the commands of our Lord, meaning the one who we follow, 
of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. That's where what we find as the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we call it, called the Sermon on the Mount. It's very famous. And here's the thing. If Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount don't push up against you, if they don't push up against you, if you're not uncomfortable as you face the real call of a Christian, what it really means, not the thing that people say when they say, oh, he's a Christian or she's a Christian, but what it really means to be a Christian, what it really means to be a little Christ, a Christ follower, if that doesn't push up against you, if that doesn't grate on you, then you're not listening. You're not listening because this is something that should push hard, hard on us. You gotta let Christ's words rock you. You gotta let them rock you. You gotta let Christ's words destroy your pride and your rebellion. There's a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treaders written by C.S. Lewis. Um, surprised that I would bring up C.S. Lewis. In that book, there's a boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace Scrub. And they say that Eustace was a little prig. They say that in England. I don't know why they won't learn to speak American, but they insist on continuing to use words like prig, um, even though we beat them in a war, right? So I, it seems, anyway, too soon? All right. Um, anyway, Eustace was a little jerk, okay? He was pretentious and rude, and basically he was a chore to be around. Nobody wanted to be around Eustace. He was a little jerk. He managed to upset everyone in the book that he was around until he was basically alone. And eventually what happens is in the story, Eustace becomes a dragon. He ends up turning into this dragon, and he's not happy about it. It's not a fun thing, apparently, to become a dragon. And uh, he he has this experience as a dragon that really changes his heart as he's sort of separated from everybody. As he's not a boy anymore, as he can't be with the other people, it starts to change his heart. It starts to change who he is. He starts to be sorrowful for the way that he was acting. And he wants to, he wants to go back to being a boy. He's recognized his errors. And so eventually Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus Christ in the Narnia stories, if you haven't read them and you, you really should, uh, he helps Eustace to become a boy again. But the process is a very painful one, and it's a very interesting one. The first thing that happens is that Eustace, as this dragon, tries to scratch the scales, the dragon scales, off of himself with these dragon claws. And so he scratched, and he scratched, and he scratched, until he got these scales off, and they're on the ground, and he thinks they're all off. But then he looks at himself, and he realizes there are still scales. So he scratches, and he scratches, and he scratches again and there's still scales. And he does it, and he does it, and he does it again, and he's still covered with scales. He could see that he was not gonna be able to get all the scales off. This is sometimes how we are. We think that by ourselves, we can have you know, freedom from the scales that have gotten on us. We think that we, can, uh, that we know the best, that we know the best ways, that we know the best methods. This is going back to Eve and Adam in the garden. Did God really say this? No, you know better. You do this and you'll be like God. And every one of our sins, all the way down through history, it's the same thing. If we're sitting, if we're walking away, it's because we think we know better than God. And we always think that we know better. And we think that we don't need God and that we can figure it out ourselves. Try harder. I'll just try harder, right? I'll just think better thoughts. I'll think positive thoughts. Scratch, scratch, scales, scales. We think that we got it all figured out, but we're just scratching the surface. And what happens is all the self-help in the world leaves us still a dragon, leaves us still with these scales. We still have these ugly scales underneath, 
no matter how much we scratch away because we can't do it ourselves. And Eustace, he finally realized this. And once Eustace realized he would not be successful at changing from a dragon to a boy by himself, this is what happens in the story. It says this. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like the bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Aslan had to use his huge lion claws to scratch off all the dragon scales on Eustace, and it hurt very badly. It felt like it cut to the heart. But Aslan did it. Aslan restored Eustace to what Eustace should have been, the little boy that God had made him to be. And Eustace hadn't been able to do it himself. This study that we're about to go through, that we're introducing this week, through the Sermon on the Mount, it's like that. It's like having God, the Lion of Judah, take his big and loving claws and scratch all the scales off us. We have built up all kinds of lies and compromises in our lives. We catch them like you catch a cold from the world, from society. We've justified all kinds of behavior to where now the scales have gotten on us. Even for the Christ follower, they tend to get there. They tend to attach, but God wants us clean. He wants us clean. He wants us to be the men and women and boys and girls that he made us to be, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to cut us to the heart, but oh, it's worth it. It's worth it. We can trust the hands of our king. That it might hurt some, but he knows what we need. As many of you know, our mission here at Acts Church is the Great Commission. The mission of every church, of every Christ follower. And this is it, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end 
of the age. Amen. We are to make disciples of Jesus Christ as he has commissioned and commanded us to do. We're his followers and his disciples. We're supposed to make more. And then we're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're to teach them to observe all things that he's commanded us. Pretty clear. A pretty clear mission. The Sermon on the Mount lays out many of those commands, of those teachings, of those things that we're supposed to follow. It gives us a picture of what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of our king, Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to show us. Now here it is, the first section of this scripture passage, we're only doing two verses this morning, that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that's the end of verse 2. His disciples came to him, and he taught them. That's, that's the setup. The rest of it is what he taught them. We're just going words in red now for two chapters. Jesus teaching. And Lord willing, we'll get to what he taught them next week. But what I want us to get before as an introduction, is before we get into all the things that Jesus taught, I want us to understand that we have to come to this with the right heart attitude. That you actually are going to have to prepare yourself, as you always should do. But I'm, but I'm asking you and exhorting you especially to prepare yourself for this section of Scripture. This powerful section of the teaching of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For those of you who lay down... And trust the Lord Jesus to tear those scales away, you're going to experience transformation. What Jesus has to say here will absolutely transform you. But there's a warning here too. And take this seriously. For those of you who refuse to listen, for those of you who refuse to let God change you, who want to keep scratching your own scales, who don't want to buy into what he has to say, your scales are going to get harder. You're going to calcify. You can't sit under the teaching of Jesus Christ from the scripture and ignore it and turn out the same either. You'll get harder. You'll get a harder heart. You'll become more hardened to the voice of the Holy Spirit. you become more hardened to the love and affection of Jesus Christ if you listen, but you don't do. If you listen, but you don't let it affect you. Do not listen to this series and ignore it or suppress the truth that Jesus Christ is bringing to you in your unrighteousness. Don't do that. It's actually incredibly harmful. It would be better for you not to hear it than to hear and ignore it. And this is a real warning. This is what James says. James 1, 21 through 25. It says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Be a doer. Be a doer of the word. Do the work. Don't be only a hearer. Listen, there has been plenty of hearing going on in our world. There's no shortage of people who hear. In fact, a lot of the things that Jesus says 
are things that many other people have said. There's no shortage of good moral teaching out there. There's no shortage of the right words. You know what there's a shortage of? Doers. People who hear and let it penetrate to the heart and change their affections. That's what there's a shortage of. Be a doer. Be a doer. We are called as believers to, to hear, believe, do. Hear, believe, do, period. That's our job. That's our job. Lord willing, this scripture that we study will make your heart softer. It'll make it softer. But if you do not let Jesus in to do his transforming work, your heart will get harder. That's how this works. It's one way or the other. There's no neutrality here. When Jesus speaks, there are those who are drawn to the aroma that's blessed and amazing and those who are repelled because they want to do their own thing. Those are the only things that happen. Nobody's like, huh, okay. Or else you're not understanding what you're hearing. Now, you and me are going to be called on and called out. Called on and called out by our loving Father in this study, in this scripture. We need to have the right heart attitude as we face that. We need to prepare ourselves. Every week as we come in during this series, we need to be preparing ourselves. There's a lot of other things going on in the world, but this is going to transform you. This is going to transform you because this is from Jesus. Jesus is going to be pushing on us, pushing against us, pushing against our ideas of what it means to be a Christian. I've been in the church and a Christian for a long time, and I've seen a lot of different people's vision or view of what it means to be a Christian. For some people, being a Christian just means you don't cuss or drink beer. For them, that's what being a Christian is. Well, you don't cuss or drink beer? Must be a good Christian. That's what they talk like. People would think that. Um, for some people, it means you go to church on Christmas. For some people, it means that you have a coffee mug with Jeremiah 29.11 on it, right? That you take photos of yourself with and put on Facebook. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> For some people, it means you're a Republican or a Democrat or an environmentalist or a gun rights person or your uncle was a pastor, so you're good, or you think that being a Christian means that you only worship with an organ or that you only worship with an electric guitar, or that you, you know, you, being a Christian just means that you're really nice to everybody, or it means you have a fish on your car, whatever you think, whatever's out there, whatever is in our minds about what it means to be a Christian, Jesus is going to tell us in no uncertain terms what it actually means to follow Christ. And very little of what we just talked about is going to be in there. It's going to talk about what it actually means to be a child of the kingdom of heaven, to be separate, to be different. Jesus is going to cut through all our nonsense. Just to the bone, he's going to cut us. And he's going to make us question all of the things that our culture and this world values. It's going to make us have to think through what we've bought into about what our world and our culture values. See, Jesus turns the world right side up. Even for those of us who don't always realize how upside down it is. Sometimes we get very used to the upside downness, and when the right side up comes, it ends up feeling like upside down, even for us. Culture says that we know better than God. That's what culture says. 
It says it loud. It says it continuously. It says that we know better than God what is good for us when it comes to human relationships, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to work, family, marriage, you name it. Culture says we know better than God. After all, they say, the Bible is old school, right? It's a Bronze Age, blah, 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 blah. You've heard this. It's kind of what they sound like to me. We don't need that book. We know better what love is all about. Here's the thing. Jesus is going to come back and remind us about something. It's going to remind us that God is love. God is love. We only know what love is if we understand that old school Bible. We only know what love is if we understand that old school Bible and Jesus' teachings. If you don't understand that, you have no idea what love is. You're upside down. Jesus is going to show us that he gets it, we don't get it. He gets it, we don't get it. And we do not get to say how it goes, he does. Not you do you, he's going to tell us, you do me. We need to follow Jesus and do what he says. But that's not what culture says, right? He's going to push back against that. He's going to push back against the idea that God is just kindness. Because that's a famous one too. Well, if you're really a Christian, then you'd be okay with fill in the blank. Because isn't it just more important to be kind? Sometimes, but not always. Not always. God is not some senile grandpa in the sky who's just, oh, I hope everyone's having a good time. Just be kind. That's not God. That's not the fiery God of scripture who loves with a passion, a jealous passion that cannot be quenched, who wants you and relationship with you and will, and will have no other in front of him. He's, not, he's no senile grandpa. That's not who God is. And Jesus is going to show us that. He's going to tell us that God is just and that he brings judgment and that your house will fall if it's not built on the rock, no matter what you think. He's going to tell us that there's a heaven and that some people, some of us, will be with him there. But you know what else he's going to say? He's going to tell us that there's a hell and that some people will go there. So for all of those who want to ignore all that, you're going to have to cut a lot of stuff out of this to keep a notion that there's no hell because he's going to tell us about that. He's going to tell us that not everyone who claims to know him and to be his follower is going to go to heaven and is going to be with him. He's going to cast away some people from himself. He's going to tell some people, I never knew you. And here's the thing. That may sound like, yeah, there's a lot of people, Hitler, you know, whatever. Here's the thing. Some of those people who he's going to say, I never knew you, are people who have done wonders in his name. Most of you probably haven't done a lot of wonders in his name, right? I'm not doing wonders in his name all the time. Some people who have done wonders in his name, he's going to tell, I never knew you. Because they were hearers and not doers. Because they didn't really have a relationship with him. He's going to push against us. It's going to push against the idea that behavior doesn't matter or that you can live a life in Christ and, and have no good fruit for the kingdom. He's going to tell us that a, a tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And you're going to have to say, reflect on yourself and your life and what kind of fruit is coming out of it. He's going to push against that. 
He's going to give us a new way, a kingdom of heaven way to measure success that looks nothing like the way the world and our culture measure success. He's going to recalibrate our lives and the things that we care and fret and worry about. Do you think money makes you great? Power? Good job? A kid that's an honor student? I've seen that bumper sticker. Somebody think that's, that's a big deal? You think those are the things that, that are great? Jesus is going to blow all that up. Those are not the things that make you great. He's going to transform your affections, your desires, away from yourself and your worries and your comfort. Jesus is going to show us that the culture of the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with, is not about self-protection, self-absorption, or self-centeredness, even though our culture is all about that. Every ad that you see is appealing to your self-absorption, your self-protection, and your self-centeredness. The whole world is aimed at that because we're so wrapped up in it. He's going to say, that's got nothing, nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. He's going to show us that commands are commands, not suggestions. And that there are real consequences. And that he's not giving you commands for your temporal benefit, for the here and now, right now, so that you can feel good and comfortable. He's not giving this Sermon on the Mount to make you healthy, to make you wealthy, or to make you better at impressing your neighbor. All of these teachings, none of them are for that. Now, most of the self-help teachings that you'll get are all about that, but none of his teachings are about that. This is not about you being successful in the world or the power of positive thinking or any of that. See, those are all temporal goals with temporal results. Listen, what Jesus is going to show us is how to live as an eternal person, as a child of God, as a child of the kingdom of heaven, now and forever. He's going to teach us how to start living the way that we will live for eternity. It's going to change our focus. It's going to change what we're looking at. We're a person. Every one of us is a person made in the image and likeness of God, and he's going to teach us how to live real life, eternal life, which means that the things the world has told you to hold on to, the things that the world has told you are valuable, he's going to command you to let go of those things. You better be ready, including your own physical life. You know, we work out so that our body will look good, right? We work out to feel better, to look better, so that, so that now, in this life, we can have those things. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be good, but it's temporal, right? It's a quid pro quo, something for something, something for something. I put up with some physical pain. I lift these heavy weights. Beach time, got the six-pack abs, right? Glenn? Yeah. He knows. The world puts almost everything in those terms, as I've said. Everything is about what you can get, what you can get in this life, even, even when they have some distance to them, like save money now so you have more money later, right? Go to school now so you can get a better paying job later. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they all appeal to our self-love, and they're all temporal, they appeal to our desire to experience physical pleasure and security in this physical life in the here and now. But Jesus pushes against all of that. 
In the 16th chapter of Matthew, he says this, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's a big thing. I can always convince somebody to do something to get something. That's not hard to do. It's every sales pitch in the world. But what, when I, what about when Jesus says, lay down your life for your brother and sister in Christ? Lay down your life. Because your life in this world is not worth trying to hold on to. Then there's no temporal reward. You know why there's no temporal reward? Because you're dead. Right? You lay down your life, it's tough to be like, and then you're going to feel great. You're not going to feel great. You're dead. Now, if you're going to heaven, you're going to feel great. But Jesus modeled that very thing for us, right? He modeled this life. What did he do? He died for you and me. He laid down his life for you and me. It was not making him happy and, 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 and pleasured and so on to lay down his life. And he was God. He could have anything he wanted or do anything he wanted. It would be perfectly within his right to smite every one of us off the face of the earth in our evil, sinful ways. And yet he came down and died for us. That's the model. That's kingdom life. Now, you may not be called to physically die for Jesus. I have no idea if that's coming for you or not. But I guarantee you, I promise you that if you're a Christ follower, you are called to die to yourself to die to your selfishness, to die to your pride, to die to your rebellion. And those are real deaths. Like the, like the claws of Aslan going right to the heart. To die to those things is difficult and painful. You gotta die to your desire to be praised and valued by other people. Your fear of, of men and women instead of your fear of God. You gotta die to your rights your rights against your brothers and sisters, your rights against your neighbors. I've got my rights. I need my rights. You gotta die to all that. You give up your rights, you get Christ. That's how it works. All of this dying to ourselves is about living. It's about living that real and that eternal life because the kingdom is real and the kingdom is life. That's where life is. The Sermon on the Mount is gonna show you what real life looks like. That's what it's gonna do. What a powerful, amazing, adventurous, rewarding life feels like. But you got to take the journey and you got to take the dive. And I'm exhorting you to prepare yourself as I'm preparing myself to let this do real work on you. Real work on you. Because once we're touched by Jesus, if we let this if we let these words in red scratch those dragon scales, we will never be the same. We will be transformed. We will be made newer and newer and newer. And there's no going back. And you would never want to go back, but there's pain in the offering. There's pain in the offering as we, as we give our bodies as living sacrifices made holy and acceptable to God. There's pain in that. There's pain in that. But there's joy in the experience of transformation. Now, here's another thing. I do not promise you, I cannot promise you that you'll be able to take anything that you have now with you to the end of this study. Meaning, you may come out of this teaching and this experience with a call to the mission field. And you may be giving up that nice house in Camus and going and live in a hut in Africa. I don't know. When Jesus starts transforming, it's his world. He does what he wants. 
You may come out of this without some of the relationships that you went in with. That boyfriend or that girlfriend is drawing you away from the Lord. You may not come out of this study with that relationship intact. You may not come out of this study with a relationship with a friend who's always tempting you to party in a way you shouldn't. That relationship may not be the same when this is over. Your relationship with your family may not be the same when this is over. You may not have the same goals or dreams or plans for your life when this is over. Because Jesus is going to be doing some changing. Here's one. You may not have as much money as God calls you to give to his kingdom. That one getting closer to the heart for some of you? People are like reaching for that. Wallet's the last thing in the kingdom, they say. Listen, it may change the way you raise your kids, the way you do your marriage. It may change everything about the way you're living. And all I'll tell you, I'll say the same thing that C.S. Lewis says about Aslan, who represents Christ in those books, says this. This is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It says, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? It's a good, that's how Susan sounds. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This journey through the teachings of the one great king, Jesus Christ, will not be safe. If it's safe, if it feels safe, it's not working. But it's good. But it's good. So you need to ask yourself, are you ready? You need to ask yourself on Sunday mornings when you get up during this series, you need to prepare yourself. I'm going in today, and that lion is going to start clawing my skin away. I'm going in today, and I need to be prepared to let Jesus push up against me, to let Jesus push up against all these things. i got to be prepared for the idea that I might be wrong about some things. That's hard for us. It's hard for me. i got to be prepared to let go of some of the things that yesterday I would have argued to the death, and tomorrow after I hear from Jesus, I may have a totally different view on I may think different about family and politics. I may think different about work. I may think different about money. I may think different about sex. I may think different about all of these things. And I'm willing to let Jesus do that to me because I'm coming in knowing that he's good, but he's not safe. My ideas and my worldview and my values are not safe when the teachings of Jesus push up against them. You get ready for that? You're going to be in for it. And we're going to be a church that cannot be stopped. We're going to prevail against the gates of hell if we let Jesus change us. Just some simple things, some simple tweaks about the way we see the world, about the way we treat each other, about the way we think about life. And we could be his hands and feet in a way that is so powerful that you won't believe the good fruit that comes from it. So let's prepare ourselves as a church. Let's bow our heads. Some of you may not even know Jesus. Some of you may be here just checking it out. You're a skeptic or you're a seeker or you're just wanting to see kind of what Christians do. These Christ followers are doing over there in that school. Checking out spirituality, that's all good. But if you heard something today and it started to tug on your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. 
And he's calling you into relationship with Jesus, not into some game, not into some uh, coffee mug Christianity. It's not, we're not going to hand you a fish to put on your car and say, go, you're a Christian now. It's the real deal. But if that's you, and if God's calling you, and if he's pushing against you, and if he's, and if he's bringing his heart, your heart towards his heart, then today's the day to just tell him, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I want to follow you. It's that simple. You surrender your life to him. Just in your head, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I know that I'm a rebel. I know that I'm trying to do it my own way. I've scratched my scales off so many times. I can't count. Now I'm looking for you to transform me. I want to make you Lord of my life. I believe you died on that cross and that you rose from the dead the third day, defeating hell and sin and death, and I have a hope because of you. And if that's you this morning and you pray that prayer, you're saved forever, for eternity. You've started a new life. If you've done that, I ask that you'll go to the prayer room, which is right out back, when we're done and let one of our elders that's back there know so that we can pray with you so that we can get you started on this adventure, on this journey. For the rest of you, I want you to just take a second here in your own heart with God to ask him to start to prepare the ground, to till up the dirt in your heart that he might implant the word in you as we go through this series, that he might implant it in me, that he might implant it in every one of you, that we might grow no matter how young you are or how old you are. Jesus is still teaching. He's still teaching. He's still growing you. Ask him that through this, he will transform your life. It will transform your family. He will transform your affections. He will transform your desires. Father, we ask that you'd be with us through this series and every series, Lord, but I pray especially as we feast on your words, as we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes from knowing you, from growing in your teachings, that we would grow closer to you, that we would know you more. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you're here in this place now. I pray that you would call people to a closer relationship with you and that you would call those who don't know you into relationship with you, that it's time. It's time to move forward. It's time for a real life to truly begin. It's time for us to fully surrender ourselves and take that next step, and there will always be that next step of growth in you for eternity, and we love that. We love that. We thank you for it, Lord. I pray for those, for Lila. Robinson, for others that are sick, for others that, that need the touch, I pray that we would be your hands and feet to them, Lord. I pray for those who are struggling financially. I pray for those who are, who are struggling with depression, with anxiety, with difficulties in life. Lord, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. I pray you would heal and touch every one of us. Lord, I pray that you forgive our sin, make us right before you this morning, that we might go out this week as your children, as children of the kingdom of heaven. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.